I'm the uh, president of the Institute of Biblical Defense, and uh, tonight what we're having is the first annual Defenders of the Faith Conference. By the word annual, of course, we mean we're attending on doing this once a year, so we're hoping that you tell your friends about this. Now, when you come in, there's, you're supposed to be given this little handout about the Institute so you can find out a little bit about what it is we do and what we can offer to the Christian community. And uh, we want to help you to be defenders of the faith. Uh, right now, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we thank you, Lord, that, uh, that you saved so many of us that are here. That you sent your Son to die on a cross of wood to take our punishment for us and to save us from the flames of hell which we all deserve. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would give us the same compassion for the lost in our community that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, had. That you would give us the desire not only to share our faith with them, and not only to share our love with them, but also to be willing to go the extra yard and to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ and to remove intellectual stumbling blocks that might keep people from coming to the living water, the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you, Jesus, and we ask you to strengthen us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be all that you called us to be and to cause us to be evangelists and defenders of the faith. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. We have a couple of uh, speakers, distinguished speakers, that are going to be speaking tonight. And I'm going to open things up, trying to answer the question, what is apologetics? What is apologetics? Basically, apologetics is the defense of the Christian faith. It's not apologizing for being a Christian, but it's making a rational defense of the Christian faith, answering objections to the gospel. Now, there's many different ways that apologetics can be done. There is a, what I call philosophical apologetics, trying to answer the question, does God exist? Is there evidence for God's existence? How can an all-good, all-powerful God coexist with evil? Defending Christian moral values in a non-Christian community. These are philosophical, apologetic issues. There's also historical evidences for the Christian faith, answering questions such as, is the Bible reliable? Is it reliable history? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is Jesus God in the flesh? Scientific apologetics gives scientific evidence for creation by God while also trying to disprove scientifically evolution. Then there's other types of apologetics which, rather than defending Christianity, they refute non-Christian worldviews. Uh, the late Dr. Walter Martin, the Bible Answer Man, uh, from the Christian Research Institute out of California. He basically made his living defending the Christian gospel by refuting the non-Christian cults and world religions. Uh, even testimonial apologetics 
sharing with others the evidence of your changed life is making a defense of the Christian faith. So there's many different ways to defend the gospel, and now I want to ask the question, is it biblical? Is apologetic biblical? Now there's a Danish philosopher and theologian named Soren Kierkegaard. He was born in 1813, died in 1855, and he basically taught that faith and reason do not meet. And that your subjective inward beliefs were of more importance than outward objective reality. He taught that in the realm of religion, one must take a blind leap of faith into the non-rational realm in order to believe. In other words, Soren Kierkegaard taught that you don't defend the Christian faith, you just believe it. You don't look for reasons to believe, you just accept it with a leap of blind faith. You throw your mind out the window. So Christianity should not be defended, only believed. That's the view called Fideism, and Soren Kierkegaard held to it. But throughout church history, there have been men, such as St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, who are apologists, defenders of the Christian faith, who believe that the evidence that is out there supports the Christian faith and refutes non-Christian views. And I want us to take a look at some passages. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. Now who is right? Is Kierkegaard right? Or are Augustine and Aquinas, are they right? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul is writing this passage, he's inspired by God, and in verse 14 he states this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. A little further down in verse 17 he says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. You see, what Paul's saying is, the important thing is not just believing something subjectively and believing it with the heart. The important thing is that your beliefs really are true to outward reality, to the objective facts. If Jesus Christ did not literally rise from the dead, then no matter how much you believe that he did, it's irrelevant. He has no power to raise you from the dead. He has no power to save you. And so the Christian faith is one that is rooted in history and it is one that can be rationally defended and God calls us to defend the faith. So I want to talk for just a couple minutes on the biblical basis for apologetics. Number one, the Bible commands us to defend the Christian faith. The Bible commands us to do apologetics. Now not everybody is going to be called to do apologetics to the degree that Dr. Mike or Dr. J.P. do. God doesn't call all Christians to get Ph.D. degrees and to uh, debate the world's leading atheists. But God wants you to defend your faith when you talk with your next door neighbor. He wants you to defend the faith when you talk to your mailman or somebody else, your colleagues at work. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. This is where we get the word apologetics from. 1 Peter chapter 3. Thank <laughs> you. 
verse 15, and the Apostle Peter says this, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We need to respect people, we need to be gentle, but we need to obey God. We need to defend the Christian faith. The word for uh, defense there is apologia in the Greek, and we get our word apologetics from it. Look at what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 4. Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. God did not call us to be idiots. God called us to be wise. And to, we need to care enough not just to share our faith with others, but we need to love them enough to where we're going to do a little bit of research and try to answer their objections and give them good, strong arguments for the truth of the Christian faith. Look at Titus chapter 1. Paul's letter to Titus chapter 1. Now verse 7, he starts talking about the overseer, the, the pastor of a local church, and about certain characteristics that he has to have. Then in verse 9, still talking about the overseer, the pastor, he says this, Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to absorb in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The pastors of local churches are not only supposed to be able to preach the word and exhort others in sound doctrine, they're also be able to, supposed to be able to refute the Jehovah's Witnesses down the block. They're supposed to be able to refute the atheist philosophy professors over there at Olympic College. The LDS, the, the Mormon church, right down the block from us. And uh, unfortunately, we, we've got the idea that the man behind the pulpit doesn't have to do his homework. But let me tell you, the man behind the pulpit better do his homework. God calls us to defend the Christian faith. Uh, Jude verse 3, we don't have time to turn there, but Jude there tells us to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We are to contend for the faith. We are to defend the Christian faith. So the Bible commands that we defend the Christian faith. Uh, the Bible also speaks of God revealing himself in nature. Psalm 19.1, King David, probably while he was a shepherd boy, looked up into the starry sky and said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. David was no fool, he was a wise man, and he saw that creation is so beautiful that is obvious evidence of the existence of the Creator. Paul in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 22 tells us we have never seen the invisible God, but we've seen the visible work of His hands. We've seen His creation. I didn't see the men who put this building together, but I see the work of their hands. We did not see the invisible God, but we have seen the work of His hands, and therefore we know that the God of the Bible exists. God revealed himself in nature. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. God has also put his moral laws in our heart and in our consciences so that we know right from wrong when we do wrong. 
we feel guilty. The Bible also speaks of historical evidences, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul did not just ask the Corinthians, he didn't, he didn't act like Soren Kierkegaard said, he just accepted by a blind leap of faith that Jesus rose from the dead. No, he provided evidence. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And so the Bible speaks of historical evidences. Don't just believe the resurrection. Go talk to the eyewitnesses. We have eyewitness testimony, and it's reliable eyewitness testimony. You know how we know that? They died for that testimony. They were sincere enough to die and be thrown to wild beasts and be crucified and be stoned rather than reject that they had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead. Let me tell you something. If you got 500 witnesses and somebody gets killed, and 500 witnesses testifying for it that they saw you do it, you're going to the electric chair. That's some pretty good evidence there, eyewitness testimony. The Bible speaks of God revealing Himself through nature. The Bible speaks of historical evidences for the truth of the Christian faith. And then also, the Bible, the early church, defended the Christian faith. We don't have time to look at these passages. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Acts chapter 3, verse 15, uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 30 to 32, Acts chapter 10, it goes on and on. Peter, whenever he talked about Jesus rising from the dead, he didn't say just believe. He said, he wrote God, raised him from the dead, and we are all witnesses of that fact. Eyewitness testimony. John. John chapter 20, the Gospel of John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he, John tells us there are many other miracles that Jesus did, but the ones that I have given you are sufficient, sufficient evidence for you to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and having believed, you will have life in His name. Luke, in Acts, he wrote Acts, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, he talked about the many convincing proofs that Jesus displayed, proving to his disciples that he was alive. Jesus was willing to give evidence for his claims. We should give evidence for his claims as well. We already talked about Jude. Apollos was willing to debate and defend the Christian faith. Acts 18, verse 24, and verse 28. And then the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse 22. Acts 17, the whole chapter. Acts 18, verse 4. The Apostle Paul would reason with Jews in the synagogues from the Old Testament scriptures attempting to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And then, once the Jews would reject that message, he would go into the marketplaces and debate with the Greek philosophers, the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers on Mars Hill, an example of that. And he would give evidence, eyewitness evidence of the resurrection of Christ from the dead as his basic claim in that area. I want us to look at one passage, and I'll close with that, and then I'll ask Dr. Mike McKenzie to come up. 2 Timothy, Paul's second letter to a young Christian defender of the faith named Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Paul thought he 
had Timothy has been defending the faith, but that's because I'm here. But now they're going to kill him. Paul recognizes they're going to kill him, and he says, I've got to encourage Timothy to continue to defend the faith despite the fact that I'm not going to be here. And Paul says this, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Paul said earlier in 1 Timothy that we should fight the good fight of faith. And that's the message that the Institute of Biblical Defense would like to get across tonight. We need not to be afraid. We need to take the spirit of discipline. We need to study the Word, and we need to defend the Christian faith and get out there and fight the good fight of faith. We've got a community that's going to hell, and we need to do more than share our faith. We also need to defend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. At this point, it's an honor to introduce to you Dr. Mike McKenzie. Now, Dr. McKenzie holds a Ph.D., and a Master of Arts degree in Religion and Ethics from the University of Southern California. He's also earned a Master of Arts in Religion degree from Westminster Theological Seminary and a Master of Arts in Apologetics from the Simon Greenlee School of Law. Now, Dr. McKenzie has had the privilege of sitting under the teachings of such great defenders of the faith as Walter Martin, John Ward Montgomery, Harold Lindzell, John Frame, and Dallas Willard. Basically, that's a who's who. Christian apologetics. Dr. McKenzie is currently teaching at Northwest College. We've had the honor to have him teach at the Institute of Biblical Defense. And so without further ado, uh, Dr. Mike McKenzie. Liked or disliked, but he's well known. 
David and I struck up a friendship based on many things. David was Jewish. I was Christian. He, though, was a searcher, and he liked to uh, discuss ethical issues, religious issues of the day. And it was a class on human values, and I was his TA. And as you probably know, in many universities, TAs do a lot of the work in discussion sections. So David and I struck up a little friendship between class and after class, and it grew and grew. Finally got to the point, and I say this to set this up, it got to the point where I felt comfortable I could share with him in front of the class on a more intimate level than I would perhaps in a normal student. I say this so you don't get the wrong idea. Being Jewish, for David, he had a dilemma. On the one hand, he had a heritage that he knew about, he held to, that he, and he claimed. But on the other hand, he was a modern Jew, as he said. He wasn't sure whom to believe. He was, in his own words, a relativist. What's right for you, that may not be right for me. And you know how that goes. It finally got to the point, late in the class, I said, David, was the Holocaust wrong? This was in front of the whole class, about 75 students. He paused for a moment and said, well, I, I guess it was because we won the war. He didn't know to say that genocide is always wrong. He didn't even think to say that. It wasn't in his vocabulary to say that. For him, ethical relativism or philosophical relativism meant whatever you do is fine as long as you don't infringe on me. But I couldn't even give you a reason why you shouldn't infringe on me. That is the academic environment that pervades much of modern scholarship today. Not all, but much. So what are we to do about it? I have only time for a suggestion tonight. If you look around behind you, perhaps some of you can see it, if not, You'll remember it when I tell you what's back there. On a chalkboard, there's a menu board back there. It says for today's menu, Sloppy Joe's and Fish Witch. Why do you think it says Fish Witch? First person who can answer me, I'll, I'll make sure to fill you up. There's the Right, but why, why today would we be serving Fish Witch? Right. Why? Who cares? I heard the answer out there. Many of us can remember growing up in public school where every Friday was grilled cheese, fish sticks, right? At that time, and this is what I call relic or a remnant of a Christian or religious influence in the public square, but at that time, there was a much more free, what I call, translation of religious values in the public square. It's becoming more difficult now, but you still see remnants and relics like that there today. Our task today, and my challenge to you today, is to learn how to translate Christian values into the secular or public square. I can testify to you, honestly, that is one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult task of the Christian life. We can gather here, and we can preach to the choir, and we can talk to one another, that's great. But when you go out those doors there, or there, that's when the work really starts. 
It's one thing to complain about society, to twist marks on its head. It's another thing to do something about it. And that's what our task is to do. For my, for my own views, I think C.S. Lewis was one of the best uh, Christian theologians, or he did not call himself a theologian, one of the best Christian apologists to do this in the last century, in this whole century we have today. Perhaps the last uh, uh, late romanticist and the, the, the first modern person of this era, C.S. Lewis, brought his Christian values into the public square in a new and fresh way. That's what we have to do. It's not easy. In fact, some would say it's impossible. My last, my concluding thought is to give you a model of society which I think is both biblical and defendable, and to give you a way in to do this. We can withdraw from society and say, well, society is going to hell in the handbasket. Who cares? H. Richard Niebuhr, in his book, Christ and Culture, called that view Christ versus culture. Some Christians say, well, that's just the world. We know what the world is like. I do not share that view. I think that's uh, giving up. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's defendable uh, in, his, in the history of Christian thought. My view, and the view I would urge upon you at least to reflect on, is Christ the transformer of culture. From something as mundane as, as fish sticks, all the way into hospitals, nursing homes, and such, Christian institutions when they started, Christians can make their appearance felt in the public square. That's our task in this society. We do it sociologically, we do it theologically, and as Phil said, we have to do it apologetically. I recommend to you, after the uh, evening's event is over, come by the table and, and look at any of the, the brochures or, or the materials, and get involved and see what the Institute of Biblical Defense is all about. Because I think they're doing something very necessary in a uh, area, in a state, in which the fastest growing religion is Mormonism. Thank you very much for your time.
in Christian apologetics and you can earn the certificate in biblical defense. At this point, I'd like to introduce the next speaker, Dr. J.P. Moreland. Uh, you know, often you get to sit under great philosophy professors and, and that type of thing when you're going through seminary training. But you don't always get to hear the teachings of the guy who writes the textbooks that the philosophy professors are using in the classroom time. Tonight we get that opportunity. Dr. J.P. Moreland earned a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Southern California. He also holds a Master of Arts in Philosophy from the University of California at Riverside and a Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Moreland is a professor of philosophy at the Talbot School of Religion at Biola University. He also one time taught at Liberty University. He's the author of several books. By the way, this introduction is in, is in a bridge version. Dr. Moreland, you talk about him for days. He's the author of several books uh, such as Scaling the Secular City, Does God Exist the Great Debate, Christianity and the Nature of Science, Universal's Qualities and Quality Instances of Defense of Realism. Uh, he also co-authored Immortality, The Other Side of Death with Dr. Gary Habermas, who's one of my professors at Liberty. And he's the uh, editor of several books such as The Creation Hypothesis and Jesus Under Fire which refutes the uh, bogus views coming out of the Jesus Seminar trying to state that Jesus really didn't say most of the stuff that he actually did say. They refute that with some of the best Christian scholarship that, that could have been called upon for such a task. And by the way, just about every one of these books is available at those tables, so you might want to take a look at them. Uh, there's some good deals over there. Dr. Moreland has debated opponents of Christianity on college campuses throughout this country. Probably his most famous debate was against Kai Nielsen, one of the world's leading atheist thinkers, and that debate dealt with the question of God's existence. Uh, they made a book out of it that's also on that, that table, and uh, needless to say, Dr. Moreland, in, in my estimation, uh, won that debate hands down. Uh, the Institute of Biblical Defense considers Dr. Moreland to be one of the leading defenders of Bibl biblical Christianity alive today. Actually, he was our third choice for tonight, but due to health reasons, uh, Aquinas and Augustine couldn't make it, so I'm not going to take any more. It never ceases uh, to amaze me the sophistication of the music in the church today. Um, I get, get the privilege of speaking to brothers and sisters all across the country, and regularly the, the music groups have a level of uh, excellence and sophistication that is just absolutely staggering to me. Just regular groups. So, uh, so, so number one, I'd like to thank my dear brothers and my sister for, for the joy, of the, the religious and aesthetic joy of listening to you. And I pray for the day when the thought life of the church will be equal to its aesthetic excellence. Um, I'm going to do something that is guaranteed to alienate you. <laughs> I don't want to, but I'm going to ask you to move over here. Uh, you're scattered all over the place, and have most of you over here, and it just feels real awkward. 
And uh, I'm going to ask you, if you get up, you probably need to stretch anyway. Uh, let's get the audience centered here so we feel more like a family instead of uh, like a bunch of people in the Jeep seats over there. And some fellows with Campus for Safe for Christ came by my fraternity house in 1968. And uh, after answering a number of questions I had for a period of about a month, I converted uh, to Christianity and became a follower of Jesus Christ. And over the next several years, had the privilege of becoming a part of the Jesus movement and of uh, uh, seeking to become a radical and an activist for Christ's sake. And to winning men and women to Christ, to understanding my own faith and trying to lead other people into a Christian life that could make a difference in this culture. And um, I've had the privilege of, of interacting with people for some time now in, in literally hundreds of churches around the country and on well over 100 university campuses where I've had the chance to speak and talk and I've done a few debates and, and interacted with a lot of non-Christians and believers alike. And, and I come to you very, very concerned uh, about what's happening in our culture. And I'm especially concerned about uh, the kids here in this audience. Uh, I want to start by telling this story. <clears throat> My daughter, I have two daughters, Ashley and Allison, 13 and 15. Uh, my daughter Ashley was in sixth grade and she came home from school one day. <clears throat> and uh, she brought a Martin Luther King flyer home with her. They attend public schools in Yorba Linda where I live in California. And it, the flyer said that Martin Luther King believed that everybody ought to be treated equally and that they all, they all had equal rights. I saw it and I said, honey, I said, what is this? She said, well, that's a flyer I brought from school. And I said, well, what is this about treating people equally and equal rights? I said, do you believe that? Do you believe that? She said, well, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I said, well, well how come you believe it? And, and she, began, you know, she knows that when I raise those questions, I'm kind of heading toward theological ends. And so she thought she'd just get to the get to the get to the final solution quickly and avoid the process. Well, God, uh, I said, no, no, no. I said no, that 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 isn't going to do it. I said, <laughs> I said, let's pretend that God isn't real. Let's pretend that he's a he's make believe like Santa Claus. Now I said, look at the painting we have on the wall over there. Got a lovely painting. And I said, do you see that painting? Yes. I said, look at the little stick figure I drew on a wadded up sheet of paper last night. It took me about 10 seconds to draw it. I was talking about something. I said, uh, if the house burnt down, do you think it would be a matter of indifference? Which one of these we should take out first? Or do you think that one of these objects we ought to take out first? Oh, she said, well, sure, we ought to take out the painting. I said, that's a good choice. I said, why do you say that? Because it's just a lot prettier. It's a lot nicer. It's worth a lot more. I said, it's more valuable, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I said, so we learned something, don't we? We learned that equals ought to be treated equally, and unequals ought to be treated unequally. And that's justice, honey. Justice tells us that equals should be treated equally, and unequals should be treated unequally. I said, you wouldn't put somebody who murdered an individual and someone who stole 20 cents in prison for the same length of time, would you? No. Why not? Because what they did isn't equal. What they did is unequal, and they ought to be treated unequally because their acts were unequal. Now I said, you know that you and I, and in fact all human beings, don't have anything in common that's equal. I said, there are smart human beings and dumb ones. There are good-looking ones and ugly ones, large ones and small ones, fast ones, slow ones, etc. 
We don't have a single thing in common that's equal. She said, yes, we do. What is it? Belly buttons. <laughs> I said, okay. There are people with big belly buttons and people with little ones. Should we treat people with big belly buttons with more respect than the people with little belly buttons? Furthermore, if we took your sister to the doctors and had her belly button cut out, would we, could we use her as a doorstop? I mean, could we stop <laughs> treating her with value? I said, you know what I'm trying to get at here, hon? What I'm trying to get at is that you and I don't have anything in common that has anything at all to do with treating people equally, except one thing. And that's where human beings made in the image of God. Now Martin Luther King, I said, was a Christian minister and believed in Jesus Christ, and that's why he said that. But if God is make-believe, there's not a single reason I can think of, ultimately, as to why people should be treated equally in, in our society. Now, what I was trying to do was something that William Wilberforce said in the 1700s. How many of you have heard of William Wilberforce? I don't, I'm not trying to embarrass you. William Wilberforce, <laughs> that's all, sorry. William Wilberforce was one of the leading social activists in the history of the church. He almost single-handedly overturned the slave trade in Great Britain. He was a godly man. He wrote a book in the 1700s on spiritual devotion, spiritual, a devotional book called Real Christianity. On the first few pages of the book, he's talking about devotional training of your children. Now guess what he says is the very first thing that you have to do if you're going to train your children to be devotionally oriented Christians. You know what he told them? You've got to teach your kids apologetics. He said, you have got to teach your kids how to reason for the existence of God and the soul and the truth of Christianity. You've got to give them evidence for why they believe what they believe, because if you don't, the only way they'll hold on to their faith in a culture that doesn't care about their faith is to privatize it and isolate it from the real world of ideas. And that is not going to produce, said Wilberforce, people with the courage to change the world. Because somebody isn't going to die for something that they don't think is true deep in their gut. They're not going to die for it. I maintain to you that we are in a period of unbelievable crisis in this culture, ladies and gentlemen. We are in a period of absolute chaos. And I want to talk to you this evening about what that chaos is about and how the church contributed to it. Because in my opinion, the chaos can be traced to the Christian religion in this country, in this culture. And my desire is not to heap guilt on anybody. You don't need any more guilt. I don't either. Uh, so don't, don't hear with those ears this evening. But we need to have a frank talk about what's been going on and what we can do about it. I want to begin with an observation uh, about what the, the Carol Kane made in Newsweek magazine several years ago. As far as I know, she's not a Christian. But Carol Kane made the observation in Newsweek that, that she said of the American people, the mind, she said, is so low on our priority system that we would almost rather do anything than think. We would almost rather do anything than think. You think that's true? People, you have to think about it. <laughs> Most people wouldn't. There's a problem here, said Cain. People 
don't think carefully any longer. That's one of the reasons why people's grammar is so poor. People don't use very good grammar any longer because language is no longer about expressing ideas but communicating feelings. And if all of the point of language is to get people to do something or to express feelings, your grammar doesn't have to be very good. There's another reason why grammar people don't care about grammar today. And no, I'm not kidding you. The, the other reason is that people want to be liberated from having to conform to rules under the guise of freedom. And to have to learn to, to conform to a set of grammatical rules is kind of servitude. And it cuts against American spirit today. That's one of the reasons why Americans have horrible grammar, is because of the radical individualized freedoms that we have today and the rebellion against various forms of rules. But Cain put her finger on a terrible problem about the mindlessness of American culture. Uh, Christopher Lavish made the observation that in the advertisement industry, which after all exists to persuade us to do things, in the advertisement industry, Lavish queries, do, do advertisers present you with honest reasons for why their product is more plausibly good for you than alternative products? Well, you know the answer to that. What they do instead is they try to do what? Create a feeling or an image in us that really often has nothing to do with the product, right? When it comes to our political process, Neil Postman said that today the makeup man is more important than the speechwriter. And he is saying we make decisions as the as an American people based on image and feeling and not based on reasoning and thought. As a people, we make decisions that way. The result of this is that we now live in a culture that is, that is characterized increasingly by social chaos. And, and as Mike pointed out, radical forms of relativism. Radical forms of relativism. And it is becoming increasingly difficult to raise children in a sane kind of way. By the time my daughter was in fifth grade, after two years of living in California, she had received six obscene phone calls from elementary school boys in our community. And we live in a very respectable middle-class community. And these boys had picked up from their fathers and from television and movies and other, other forms of cultural expression that there are certain ways that are appropriate and in fact attention-getting adult behaviors. Adult behaviors. We are in a period of absolute crisis, in my opinion. What are we going to do about it? What's the solution? We well, you know what Carol Kane said? Now, this was in front of God and Newsweek magazine. Carol Kane said the solution to the mindlessness of American society is not the public schools, and it certainly isn't the universities. It's the church. She said ministers have got to teach their congregations the importance of thinking and how to think. Because she says it has always been the church that has been the bastion of thought and reason. The bad news is that I fear that our practices today as Christians, I fear that the way we practice our religion week by week in local church structure, may I say I've planted three churches. So I have actually, I have planted three churches. I'm not an ivory tower pontificate here. I have uh, pontificated. I, I have, uh, I've been in the trenches. But I fear that the church has become, as R.C. Sproul put it, it has entered the most anti-intellectual period in its entire history. 
I don't, I, I don't mean to embarrass anyone, but I want to just I want to raise a couple of thoughts with you. And here's here's the thought. You can you can be in a church for 20 or 30 years today and be a fairly functional member of that church and know nothing about your religion. Whenever a cultist comes to my door, I invite them in and I'll say to them, "You use the Bible out of context." They'll say, "No, I don't do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do." I said, "I'll prove it to you." I'll say, take any one of the 66 books of the Old New Testament, any one of them up here, and give me the historical background of the book. Give me the main purpose of the book. And trace the general development of the author's argument from the beginning to the end of the book. Not in, not chapter, not paragraph, but, but just the flow of the argument. In any book you want. I've never had a cultist do it. I've had very few Christians who've been able to do it. Now, this is, again, let's get past guilt here. We, we're all failures in many ways. This is, that's not the issue here this evening. What I am saying to you is something that Carl Henry said about our young people in particular. He said, unless we train our young people to disciplined thinking, we waste, even undermine, one of Christianity's most precious resources. And disciplined thinking requires children seeing adults spending time doing serious biblical and theological and intellectual work with one another, whether you're a plumber, I come from a blue-collar family, it doesn't matter what you do for a job, ladies and gentlemen. God has given us all reason, and we can all get better at it. We may not all be giants, because we all have different gifts. I'll never be a giant in music. There's a reason why I didn't say it tonight. <laughs> I was even hesitant to clap. Um, not because I didn't want to. But, there, but we have different gifts. But as a congregation of people, as bodies of Christ, it is important, says Henry, that we learn to think carefully, that we learn to reason, and that we learn to engage in serious intellectual work in the church. In the church. Now, there is a biblical basis for this, and, and uh, Phil has, has shared this with you some, but I want to turn to a couple of things with you and, and talk to you a little bit about the biblical basis for the importance of the mind in, in Christian living. Then I'd like to talk to you briefly about what has happened to us because of the church's loss of emphasis on the mind, and then I want to close with a word of exhortation about something. Turn to, turn to Romans chapter 12. I will reverse a couple of passages that you'll be very familiar with. And because of time, I don't want to go into great detail on these. You know, don't you, that Romans 12, 1 and 2 are arguably the Apostle Paul's core concept of spiritual transformation. If you had to pick any passage in Paul like in the following literature, that that probably best defined his understanding of spiritual journey, of the spiritual journey. Yeah. God forbid you have to pick one, but if you had to, nobody would laugh at you if you picked Romans 12, 1 and 2. And the, the essence of, of spiritual transformation in Romans 12, 1 and 2 is what Paul says when he says, don't be conformed to this world in verse 2, but be transformed, and notice he did not say by prayer here, he did not say by singing, he did not say by witnessing or fellowship, though there are other places he mentions that. But in Romans, his core lead idea in transformation is through the renewing 
of the intellect, not the feelings or heart, but the mind. Why is that? Why is that? Here's why your life changes as your mind is renewed. Try to follow me on this now. You and I carry around with us, everywhere we go, a map. And that map consists of the ideas that you and I really believe. Not the things we say we believe, but the things that we honestly believe.